Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Dr. Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult. Be sure to follow the link in the description after today's episode for more information about today's article and to claim CME credit. This podcast is brought to you by PrimeMed. Frank is a 62-year-old family doctor who's been in practice for over 31 years. He's in the bathroom looking in the mirror and then looking down at an EKG he cannot interpret. Mike L., a 58-year-old man, came in for a simple blood pressure check and on review of systems, he mentioned occasional palpitations, sometimes associated with chest pressure. While his exam and heart sounds were completely normal, an EKG shows what the computer read as bigeminy. How can I be so inept to not know what to do next? I can't call my cardiology consults without knowing what I'm supposed to do. Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today to talk about imposter syndrome is Dr. Susan Feeney, Assistant Professor and Director of the Adult Gerontology and Family Nurse Practitioner Programs at the UMass Chan Medical School, Tan Chingfen Graduate School of Nursing. Also joining us is Dr. Jill Terrian, Associate Professor and Associate Dean of Interprofessional and Community Partnerships at the UMass Chan Medical School, Tan Chingfen Graduate School of Nursing, and Dr. Marianne Montague, Instructor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School, Visiting Assistant Professor at Fitchburg State University and term lecturer at the Mass General Institute of Health Professions. Thank you all three for joining me today. Great to be here. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Frank. This is a real case involving me. Sounds like Frank has a good case of imposter syndrome. How is it evaluated in the healthcare world? So imposter syndrome is defined as a concept of low self-valuation with a harsh response to perceived personal shortcomings and perpetual deferral of self-care and personal needs to meet the needs of others. Well, that certainly sounds like me. Um, It was first described in 1978 as a persistent belief that one's success is undeserved rather than due to personal effort, skill, and ability. And it's seen very commonly throughout the world of medicine. It's seen in students and trainees, recent medical graduates, but more commonly seen in women, underrepresented minorities, and even providers like me with years of experience, all who sometimes question their abilities, assuming that they should not be where they are and worrying that someone will notice. Believe it or not, there's data that shows imposter syndrome correlates with an increased risk for burnout and with suicide ideation. It was first described, as I said, back in the late 70s, and a Dr. Clance developed an imposter phenomena scale. And this was a 20-item scale that asked those who, who took the test a series of questions that was on a, a five-point scale ranging from not at all to very true. And they were a, a variety of questions, primarily asking about confidence. Things like, I'm afraid people important to me may find out that I'm not as capable as I think I am. Or I often compare my ability to those around me and think they are more intelligent. All very true. Frank, that is very true. Um, I think we all can relate to that as providers. 
And, you know, what do we know about the epidemiology of imposter syndrome? Well, um, believe it or not, it's mostly been studied in just physicians. So it's not been studied in the world of physician assistants or nurse practitioners, even though we know it's prevalent in all levels, including floor nurses and office nurses across the board. So they gave a, a subset of the Clance scale four questions to a broad range of physicians, over 3,000 physicians. And it turned out that about 10% of the patients said that it was very true that they had all four of the questions rated as highly as they could. So at least one in 10 of actively practicing physicians feel this way regularly. Um, another study looked at general surgical residents. So that transition time from finishing education and starting practice is key. And they, they, they asked general surgery residents who tend to be a fairly confident group. They gave them the, the Clance imposter phenomenon scale. And it turned out that 76% had significant or severe imposter syndrome. And data suggests that the risks are greatest in particular with early career folks, as I said. So that risk diminishes with time, but never fully goes away. Yeah, Frank, this is such a common problem in our world too. And it's not just nurse practitioners, it's nurses, it's across the board. So how do we address this? How do we help our colleagues? There's, there's a little bit of descriptive literature and a few instances of studies that have found benefit. Um, where the literature starts to point is really putting in place active structures to help prevent it and then care for team members when it happens. So those structures have to be things that support each of every one of the providers and that making, recognizing your feelings of inadequacy as you know common and, and acceptable and, and easily to address. Other things that have been found are engaging in a mentorship relationship, providing an environment that is open but is not punitive, making constructive feedback something that everyone can both receive and give to anyone in their group, and a simple awareness that imposter syndrome is real, and it's actually part of what we do. We do a highly stressful job when we care for patients, and you know that, that ability to wonder if we're doing the right thing probably helps lower the risk we make an error, but it takes a personal, personal toll. So I've looked and I've delved into things a little bit. And, you know, when, when you go study by study, there are a couple of themes that come out. The first is having a peer group and finding a place to discuss things with peers. And that's exactly what I did with my patient. I looked at that EKG, thought, I'm an idiot. I've never seen Bigemini except on an exam. And I went to one of my colleagues and I'm like, this is the case. This is the EKG. What do you think? I should do. And the first thing he said was, call a cardiologist because I don't know. And so I, I shared the EKG with a cardiology colleague and they got right back to me and gave me a fairly straightforward approach to how to deal with both the patient and reassured me that it's not uncommon. Bigemini doesn't appear in their ambulatory clinics on a daily basis. I was going to say, I think you bring up a great point because you mentioned you reached out to a cardiology friend. I think as we practice and even when we're new, we find that mentorship and then we, it turns into a peer group of people we can bounce ideas off of. And we have to remember when I was a new NP, 
I had so many insecurities and you spend all this time in school and different from, you know, MD, you don't have as many residency programs and stuff. So how do you get that support once you're independently licensed? And so I remember I had a supervising physician who I used to meet with weekly, or then you have colleagues that you bounce things off of and everybody has strengths and weakness. And as you grow in the profession, you're still a continual learner. And so somebody might have input that you don't have. And so it's always helpful to say, hey, Susan, have you experienced this? Jill, have you experienced this, Frank? And we can all work together. Right. And and I think you bring up a really good point, Marianne, is that most of our, especially NP, and I'm sure the PA graduates may not go into this structured residency where there's a, a network made there for you. So I really counsel the new grads to say, you need to be really thoughtful about that first job and really get information on where's what type of structured support will I have? What's the expectation on the number of patients I'm going to see and when will I ramp up? And what type of, as you mentioned, Marianne, is there a, a mentor that I will have that is dedicated that I can reach out to? Because those are the things that really help establish confidence and security. And many, many folks, many NPs and PAs, wind up being burnt out very quickly because they're in situations where they're not onboarded in a sort of structural, gradual way because the learning curve is very high and and to acknowledge that is important. So uh, we really encourage the students when they're looking to think about all of those things, not just the reimbursement, not just the, the pay package, but who's there, what kind of expectations are there. Also, if this is the first time this practice has ever employed a nurse practitioner, they um, they may have a different set of expectations. So taking the time to really get that information and, and it will help them support you and give you the, hopefully the longevity there that you want, but to really enforce to everybody that, you know, we all need counsel with our colleagues at some point and that reaching out is actually a sign of, of actually having the confidence to do that, as knowing, okay, I'm not quite sure how, what to do here. And I have the confidence of, of, of who to ask and reach out to colleagues. All great points. And Frank, I like your list. And, you know, as you mentioned, you've been in practice a long time, and some of us have been too. I get great satisfaction and confidence attending a live conference. I'm so glad that COVID is going by the wayside because there's nothing like immersing yourself in a conference, you know, whether it be two days, one day or whatever, to really focus on things and get the finer points, the best evidence. And it really bolsters me when I go back to clinic and I see something that I just learned about because we all know we're lifelong learners and we all know that supporting our colleagues, especially if they're new, is really important because they need evaluation, feedback, and they need to trust you that they can ask any question. Jill, I think you make a great point too. I feel conferences energize me, but it also extends my network of people I can in the future bounce ideas off of and get that extra support as I continue to grow and learn and practice. I find the same thing true for me. Whenever I go to a meeting and someone says something on stage, if it's different for me, I will turn to the person next to me and say, 
do you do that? I never heard of that. And and it really does, even if you never see that person again, you gain some insight about, about clinical practice. Medical residency is nice because you have a couple of years to lean to the chair next to you and ask your peer, hey, what do I do with this? Before you go and, and talk, you're supervising attending. But but I like the thought that when you get into practice, making case discussion a key component of things. When I, when I started my practice back in the 90s, we just sort of naturally fell into this rhythm where we'd have lunch together every Tuesday. And everybody could bring a case or two and just say, I got this. I don't know how to manage it. We were all fresh out of residency. And, you know, it was hard to figure out what to do when you're in a community after you had been in a situation that was highly supportive of, of training people. So, A, I, I, I strongly endorse finding a way to share things with your peers. Then I really strongly support attending continuing education because you, as you say, Marianne, you extend your network. You've got that opportunity to not only learn more, but to ask someone who does this as, you know, sitting in right next to you with the same angst and stress. Do you do that? Am I, you know, am I out of touch or is that something I should do? And especially for new grads too, Frank, is that, you know, when you come out of a learning environment, it's more structured, it's more measured, and then you're in real clinical situations and it's a great way to learn because now you've got this real life situation and you can apply it and you're going to have questions you may never have had in school. So to have those, you know, be able to attend conferences, have a network of mentors, have a structured environment for your onboarding in the new place of employment is are essential to success and to feeling confident about what you do and to understand that it's lifelong, that you're always, and you know, stuff changes. You're always going to have to be learning and adapting. And we have that toolbox that we know the knowledge, but now it's how do we apply it? And so sometimes I feel that from conferences and programs and different boot camps that they offer, I feel that it offers opportunity for us to take our toolbox and then say, I know how to work up this patient, but maybe what do I do next? Or I know what the textbook said or the guidelines say, but how do I make this relevant to the patient sitting in front of me? I do think finding a way, especially for new grads to brush up on the diagnosis and management of common conditions can help relieve some of that anxiety. Just enough like, yeah, yeah, I've learned all about hypertension. Here's the key points of diagnosis and management and second steps and so forth. And I think the final thing is, and I have found this throughout my career, whether it was in clinical practice or outside, is to find a mentor, find someone you can trust that you can go to to say, I'm having this thought or this career change idea or whatever. One of the things I notice amongst healthcare professionals are we have a deep commitment to our patient population. And sometimes we'll be hesitant to leave uh, a work setting that isn't ideal for us so that because we're afraid we're going to abandon our patients or they're not going to get the care we want to give them. And, And while that's possibly true, on the other hand, you're putting aside your needs for this other thing that you're assuming. And, and that's just detrimental over and over again, inside of medicine and out. We have to take good care of ourselves or we're not going to be really good at taking care of others. I think another thing when I think of imposter syndrome is, and I've told students this before, Frank, if you were in that position, you had the EKG, it's completely appropriate for you to say, you know what? 
I'm not quite sure about this, even to the patient and say, I'm going to consult with one of my colleagues. It doesn't make you look inferior. It doesn't make you look like you shouldn't be there. And I explained to students and I explained to peers and that it helps you be human. And it helps you know that you're trying to do the best for the patient in the moment they're in. You're going to get all the resources you can on board. It, it's very true. I tell my learners all the time, I sit with the patient and if I have to order a test or use a medication I'm not familiar with, I look it up right in front of them. I don't make up some excuse and walk out of the room. And my patients really appreciate that. They, I say to them, geez, I can't remember the dose of, of your medication, or I want to just double check before I order that test to make sure it's the right one. Um, they're okay with that. The patients, our learners, and even some of our peers are not. The, the big issue with, with the EKG was my own personal sense of inadequacy. Like, how could I be this far along and not have in my mind a clear picture? Well, I thank you all for contributing to this discussion in imposter syndrome. I think uh, there, there's a fair amount of relevance in all of our practices. And I like the idea of having structure built into clinical care that, that helps lower some of the risks imposter syndrome poses. Thanks again, everyone. Practice pointer. Address your sense of inadequacy by recognizing that it's very common and easily treated by finding a mentor and a support group to bounce cases off of going to live educational meetings to share your stories with your peers, and supporting your knowledge base by attending a clinical review course. Hi, everyone. We just did a great podcast on imposter syndrome. I wanted you to know that PrimeMed is starting a boot camp of common diagnostic and treatment approaches to things we see every day in clinical practice. It's a series of 41 asynchronous brief reviews of the common topics we see. The cost is $500 and it comes with over 20 CME CE credits. It involves brief lecture along with peer case discussion. Check it out on the PrimeMed website. Join us next time when we discuss the relative efficacy or lack of efficacy of antibiotic drops in acute conjunctivitis in children. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim CME credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, follow the link in the description. To stay up to date on the most recent clinical research and news, please subscribe to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine and be sure to check out PrimeMed.com for additional CME content.